Welcome to the manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm James. And we're still spooky. (laughs) 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 Okay. Because it actually started really quite well, and and then you died. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Finally. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no! I get it. <laughs> I, I, I love me, and I, I get it. <laughs> oh, it, it reminds me, neighbors down the street have already started their Halloween directions or decorations. It's um, they started at the beginning of September, and as I was coming home from picking up lunch today, I, I noticed something they had done, and this was something you and I had actually talked about doing. They have bought the plastic pumpkin pails for trick or treating. Oh. And they've hung them in some of the trees out in their front yard. Nice. <laughs> Get a nice Halloween tree going. <laughs> yeah. They they always do up their yard, and they've already got the giant spider out in the yard. Nice. They, they've had skeletons sitting on the front porch all summer. <laughs> screw it. It's 2020, and even if it wasn't, screw it. <laughs> yeah. I've got my Halloween stuff up. It's been up for a week or two, but oh, all yeah, of it yeah. as of a few days ago. And I, my, my wife loves Christmas a lot, so it's okay. I get two months Halloween. She gets two months of Christmas. Yeah, hey, all good. It's fair. It's fair. Yeah. As you can all obviously tell, it is spooky season. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween time. Yeah. See, there's Satan's jumping in. Yeah. So uh, before we get into the whatever you call it topic. <laughs> That's the bunny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I picked a beer that goes with our topic. Uh-huh. It is, I, I won't say why it goes with the topic until we get to that topic. Uh, but it is Sun King, live from Leuven, or however the hell you pronounce it, L-E-U-V-E-N, Leuven, 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 I don't know. It's a, it's a Belgian-style wheat, so, you know, one of those Belgian-y French places. But it's a, it's an imperial wheat ale, so it's a very strong wheat. So you have to imagine it comes from wheat stalks, those fields of wheat flowing in the wind, and they're super strong and spooky. Yeah. Yes, what you said. <laughs> so, so you'll see how that matches up here soon. <laughs> yes, 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 you will. Yes, especially with this first one we're going to talk about. Um, I, how did you say that, Leuven? I think that's right. Yeah, what do you know? I got lucky. I, I think. I, I mean, I won't swear, but I think. Oh, you swear all the time. I do. I, do. <laughs> I won't swear. Liar! <laughs> well, okay, there's swear, and then there's swear. That's, I swear you're right. Fuck yeah, I am. <laughs> um, I am. I'm actually trying something new. It's, this is from Whole Hog Brewery in Wisconsin. Um, and it's their pumpkin ale. Uh, I've never had anything from Whole Hog Brewery, so I, I saw that and thought I'd try it. It was also the only pumpkin ale I could find that I, when I went back to the liquor store, because everybody else pretty much bought everything up, which again pisses me off because I did not find any shipyard this year. Huh. Weird. Fuckers. No kidding. That's popular. I, that's the problem. Well. I can never find it because it sells out. Because we don't get that much of it down here. Well, that's bullshit. That's, bullshit, I say. That's what I say. Um, but no, this uh, this whole hog uh, pumpkin ale is it's pretty good. It if you like pumpkin pie, that's kind of what it tastes like. 
Yeah, it like tastes, pumpkin it, pie. Yeah, it tastes like pumpkin pie filling. Cool. Maybe not so much the crust, but if you like the pumpkin pie filling, it's some, this is pretty good stuff. I'm liking it. So have you checked with your local brew pubs, breweries, to see if they have a pumpkin beer? Um, no, but you know, I might do that uh, this week. See what's, yeah, see what's half up. Half of the ones up here do. I, um, uh, straight to ale is usually the first one I think of, and... I, I know they've put some different stuff out recently, but I don't remember seeing anything about a pumpkin ale. Anyway, shall we? We should. We should continue our Halloween spectacular spooky Samhain author fest. Yeah. So uh, this episode, we are going to talk about the other B author. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this will be the third B author. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, but this is the second A.B. author. Because <laughs> last episode was Ambrose Bierce. This episode is Algernon Blackwood, who wrote uh, uh, roughly around the same time. I think he was a little, he came a little bit later than Bierce. Just a wee bit. Because I know at yeah. least one of the ones we're going to talk about came out in 1910. So yeah, not yeah. much later. Well, I mean, I think he was, he was born a little bit later, you know, didn't really start writing until a little bit later. Um, I won't, I've, I think we're going to do biographical stuff later on, so we won't go into any of that stuff right now. But, but yeah, these, uh, both of these stories um, that we're going to talk about are from the early 20th century. And uh, the, the order I'm going to do, I was, I was originally, uh, when I sat down to do my notes, I was like, all right, I'm going to start with this one. Uh, and, and the reason being was it was alphabetical. And then when I started looking at the publication dates, I was like, no, no I'm going to go with publication date. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start with The Willows, published in 1907 as part of the collection titled The Listener and Other Stories. It's the tale of two friends the unnamed narrator and his friend, the Swede. <laughs> Algernon is English, right? He's from England. Yes, he, he is. Yeah, he's from England. Um, I, okay, so a little bit of biographical information. He did live in Canada and the U.S. for a while, and he traveled Europe quite a bit. Um, I, you know, Tolkien did that too, would go on uh, hikes, like in the Alps and stuff like that. And uh, Blackwood did some of that stuff. So that's, that's where some of those, those kind of travels are where these two stories kind of have some of their origins. Yeah. So it's the, the narrator and the Swede. And, and that's, he never gives, uh, the, the narrator never gives his own name. He only refers to his friend as the Swede. It's, <laughs> it's the guy from Sweden, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually based on a friend of Blackwood's. <laughs> who I don't think was actually Swedish, but he still um, based him on the phrase of his. <laughs> the two of them are on a canoe journey uh, down the Danube during the summer at a time of high flood. You know, one of, the, one of the things I love about Blackwood is how vividly he can describe a scene. I finished reading another one of his books. I won't really go into it, but I, I remember I, I, I told you, I was taking my time reading it because I wanted to savor. I've never <laughs> said that about somebody's writing before. I wanted to savor what he wrote. 
he's, he's extraordinarily good at natural settings and scenes and making you feel like you're actually there with the wind in your hair and yes. and feeling this uh, water spray and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I was going to read this paragraph. In high flood, this great acreage of sand, shingle beds, and willow-grown islands is almost topped by the water. But in normal seasons, the bushes bend and rustle in the free winds, showing their silver leaves to the sunshine in an ever-moving plane of bewildering beauty. These willows never attain to the dignity of trees. They have no rigid trunks. They remain humble bushes with rounded tops and soft outline, swaying on slender stems that answer to the least pressure of the wind, supple as grasses, and so continually shifting that they somehow give the impression that the entire plain is moving and alive. For the wind sends waves rising and falling over the whole surface, waves of leaves instead of waves of water. Green swells like the sea, too, until the branches turn and lift, and then silvery white as their underside turns to the sun. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Evocative, I think, is it yeah. used. I will go, go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he takes these desolate places and makes them alive. Yes. And he can give them an otherworldly feel. Um, I've got another example here. The sense of remoteness from the world of humankind, the utter isolation, the fascination of the singular world of willows, winds, and waters instantly laid its spell upon us both so that we allowed laughingly to one another that we ought by rights to have held some special kind of passport to admit us and that we had somewhat audaciously come without asking leave into a separate little kingdom of wonder and magic a kingdom that was reserved for the use of others who had a right to it with everywhere unwritten warnings to trespassers for those who had the imagination to discover them it's a little foreboding there. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, it makes it sound like a fairy kingdom, almost even. A, a little bit, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, they're traveling down the, the, the Danube, and they're, they're going through this area. There was a lot of willows and stuff. And uh, they stopped to camp for the night on an island that's in the middle of the Danube, and it's covered with these willows. And, uh, you know, like I just said, the narrator has a bit of foreboding. Um, he stops, uh, or while well, they're, you know, they've set up camp and everything, and he takes a minute and he kind of wanders around the island a little bit. And uh, is, altogether, it was an impressive scene with its utter loneliness, its bizarre suggestion. And as I gazed, long and curiously, a singular emotion began to stir somewhere in the depths of me. Midway in my delight of the wild beauty, there crept, unbidden and unexplained, a curious feeling of disquietude, almost alarm. <laughs> disquietude <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so yeah he's he's there's wonderful descriptions of everything um he's, he starts to put in putting the sense the sense of foreboding uh the the two of them uh as as they're they're both kind of looking around they they think they see a body floating in the water but then decide it was just an otter a little bit later they see a man on a flat bottom boat uh he, he seems like he's trying to tell them something uh, but they can't hear him because the wind is is it's gusting mightily, and so you know is eventually they what they see him do is he he crosses himself, um, you know like a good Catholic, and uh, as as he travels on down the Danube, and 
you know, they kind of like, what was he, was he trying to warn us of something? You know, <laughs> there's no, no foreboding there. No foreshadowing <laughs> no. at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> to go with what you're saying, he actually, the author, you know, the, the protagonist, the first person yeah. talks about, it was full of tricks too. And the great world, like he's actually talking about how beautiful, but tricksy it can also be like, you know, yeah. like hobbits is. <laughs> yeah. Trixie Willows is. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's mm, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he, talk, he, he talks about the animals and the birds, mm-hmm. and he, he makes great, it, it, it's not a human realm at all. No, no, it is not. Very alive, and it goes from being open and airy and breathing and becomes stifling, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, and, and he even flashes back to where somebody's told him provisions or or an officer so somebody they met yeah a hungarian gave them a warning about what channels to take because he said it's dangerous yeah yeah you could get uh you could start down a a channel of the river that uh runs out of water and you could get stranded and there's nothing around for miles and miles and miles and no farms and no towns or anything you know and no fish because there's no water (laughs) (laughs) So uh, during their evening on the beach, the, the narrator wanders around a little bit more. I've got another uh, quote here. He's looking around and uh, he says, they made me think of a host of beings from another plane of life, another evolution altogether, perhaps, all discussing a mystery known only to themselves. I watched them moving busily together, oddly shaking their big bushy heads, twirling their myriad leaves, even when there was no wind. They moved of their own will as though alive and they touched by some incalculable method my own keen sense of the horrible yes <laughs> so yeah he's, he's, <laughs> he peaks your own imagination but you can tell he gets himself worked up with his own imagination too <laughs> yep so during the night uh the narrator is awoken a couple of times uh he sees and hears weird things uh, that at this point, I'm not going to read out any more of the book or story because this is the point that you really want to read it on your own. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the, the, the Swede seems to sleep through it all. The next morning, they find out that some of their provisions are missing, uh, as is the steering paddle, which is basically the rudder for their canoe. The canoe has been damaged. All had been secured the night before. And the narrator had noticed that they were still secure one of the times that he had gotten up during the night. Um, So they were stuck until they could repair the canoe. And they only had one regular paddle with which to steer and it had also been damaged. So, you know, they were kind of, they were screwed, you know. And that leads to a sense of distrust between the two of them because who else was there that could have done this? If I didn't do it. Yeah. (laughs) So they do spend the next day, they work on repairing the canoe, hope to leave the next morning. The wind has died down, but now there are other sounds, sounds which they can now hear because the wind is no longer drowning them out. And now they are also starting to have dark thoughts. So um, that night, the narrator again awakes and notices something wrong. The Swede has left the tent. Narrator rushes out to search for him and finds him just as he is about to step into the river. Pulls him back at the last instant. And as the Swede is thanking him, they see it. A thing that as it eventually floats away down the Danube, reminds them of an otter. 
but I'm not going to tell you what it is because that would spoil oh, it. Can <laughs> ask? Is it an otter? Is it is an otter? You ought to tell us. No, no, I ought to not. <laughs> anyway, when you're saying Danube, you had just a slight inflection through my headphones. Uh -huh. That almost sounded like the Danube. And okay. that seems actually quite apropos because they seem like they're going to be fucked and damned here pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know if you had any more on that one, but that's that's all I was going to say on that because um, I, I want to intrigue our listeners into going and reading it for themselves. <laughs> yes, you intrigue, master. Yes, I want to intrigue. <laughs> uh, I've got some context things. Okay, sure. So I, I may have some things towards the end, but I'll, I'll respect your wishes to make it intriguing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because what Jody mentioned earlier about Algernon Blackwood's travels and everything, some of the, I had to look up a few terms just to make sure I understood. And, and of course, they talk about using a Canadian canoe. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had to look that up. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I grew up in America and I learned about Revolutionary War types of things where we settled America, you know, the United States and Canada and everything. And I'm thinking, well, is that just like a, and yes, it's a Native American canoe. It's what people in America would consider a canoe. You know, it's, it's not broad bottomed, it's got the sort of log trunk looking thing. Oh, okay. Um, it's actually, that's kind of what I pictured. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And there's, uh, they, use a, they have a gypsy tent, which is just like a small circus tent type of thing. If you've ever been to a Ren fair, it's kind of what the king and queen would sit under. Oh, <laughs> kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, uh, with the yeah. Yeah. I actually had a little paragraph I was going to read, but you, you read it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's never happened. <laughs> we usually pick different things. <laughs> Ooh, just out of curiosity, which one was it? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I'm going to keep you intrigued. Ha ha ha, but I've already read it, so ha. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a Japanese anime. Ha ha. Oh, ha ha. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, oh, uh, so they talk about uh, the old gods of, of antiquity. Like it, it's like got that old feel to it. Like yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah. And, Talks about sacred groves and elemental deities and the shrines and the Romans with their haunted regions and stuff and the mm -hmm. and they kind of go from that feel and then they get calm again and they get composed and then they get a little more antsy again. Yeah, and and he does a good job of making things bump back and forth and well, is this real? Well, I'm not sure, but this might be. Ooh, is this part real? Damn, how about this? Uh huh. <laughs> it is. Uh, words like diabolical wind. And let's see, nope, that'd be a spoiler, 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 spoiler. I mean, I like his terms of multitudinous things. I can't say the rest because it'd be a spoiler. Uh -huh. I, I actually, uh, I did I did have a paragraph I almost was going to read that, um, that that described one of the things that he saw one of the times he slipped out of the tent when he woke up that first night. And I thought, no. That might be a spoiler, though. Yeah, that, that, that would definitely be a spoiler. They need to read that. I don't want to give that away. Because if we tell you what it is, then it won't be as spooky when you actually read it. That's true. See, well, I'm trying to yeah skip some things here, and uh, I, I will say I can I, I'll say this I don't think this will ruin anything at all. But they use food like hobbits. They use it for comfort. They will have they, a little bit to eat to relax and calm down and compose yes. themselves again. Yes. It's a good point. I liked it. Yeah. Very nice. The, the grateful smell of frizzling bacon entered the tent door. <laughs> uh, See, yeah. and that's that, and that's what I'm curious about. I don't. 
I guess I could look in his biography or his letters and, and see if Professor Tolkien ever said anything about Blackwood. I don't know that Blackwood was an influence on him, but it almost feels like he should have been <laughs> from the way he wrote. It, because it almost, it almost feels to me like he influenced Tolkien. And I don't know that he did. But I, I, it feels like there should be a connection there, not because, you know, not, not because of the, the parallels I already drew earlier you know, <laughs> between the travels and stuff, the, the hiking in the Alps and stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, there's just something about it. To, well, he even talks about the Swede was changing because he ate very little breakfast and for once omitted to smoke his pipe. Yeah, yeah. And in the first draft of his essay, Notes on the Nomenclature of the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien stated that he derived the phrase Crack of Doom from an unnamed story by Algernon Blackwood. So he at least read him. He has at and least I, read now him. That you, yeah, now that you bring that up, I do remember that. So and that's more, and there's more if you, we looked it up, but that would be a whole damn episode. So, yeah. You know. But yep, at least a little bit. Nice. And it, yeah, it makes sure sense. It does make sense because it, um, I, I do think that it kind of shows up in Tolkien's own writing style, which may be part of the I reason I like that. Blackwood so much because I like Tolkien's writing style so much. I even though, yeah. Even though Tolkien can be kind of verbose. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe a wee bit. But yeah. Yeah. But what do you, yeah, if he's a, you're, he's a philologist, I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> What's a philologist? <laughs> <laughs> Yep, and, and just like us, they use laughter as a release yes. to kind of get things back on. So, yep. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, there's um, – I didn't mention it so much uh, – well, I didn't mention it at all here. But um, in the next story, you definitely see that psychology versus the supernatural or, or, or science versus the supernatural kind of stuff. And um, it, you see the psychological aspects of trying to deal with the fear. And that, that's that whole, you know, trying to use laughter to cope with it and everything. Um, I, I didn't mention it in my notes on the Willows, but I do mention it in my notes on the Wendigo, which is the next story. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Oh, and I'm ready to move on. Everything else I had marked off would be repetitive or spoil <laughs> from, from where you want to go. So, yeah, I'm yeah. going to take a drink of my Willows. I mean, my wheat beer. Yes. And by the way, yeah, I, I, when, when you said... Yeah. <laughs> when you said wheat beer and waving and I was like, well, oh, the willows, yes. <laughs> yep. Very nice. So the Wendigo, published in 1910 as part of the collection The Lost Valley and Other Stories. Um, and it takes place during moose season in the northwest Ontario, um, in northwest Ontario, Canada. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my ass. <laughs> that trick never works. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, genius. Oh, so uh, this story has five characters. The two Scotsmen, Dr. Cathcart from Aberdeen, and his nephew, Young Simpson, a divinity student. I love that, Young Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> I say, boy, I say, boy, come here, Young Simpson. Um, the doctor's guide, Hank Davis. And uh, uh, Joseph, uh, and you know, this is, it's French. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm just going to throw it out there. Defago, uh, Joseph Defago, a French-Canadian hired by Hank to be Young Simpson's guide. 
and they're uh, I've I don't, I I don't know I mean I guess he's not necessarily just the cook, uh, but Punk, uh, who's a Native American, who they brought along to take care of the campsite. So he does he does the cooking and uh, you know washing up the dishes and uh, you know kind of keeps the, track of everything when they go yeah, off on their yeah yeah they they go off in the hunts he stays back at the camp and and keeps everything going and everything you know keeps track of everything. This apparently this season, uh, there were, no one had been able to find moose. Um, not just our, our party of mighty hunters. <laughs> party of mighty hunters, mighty hunters. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, none of them have spears and magic helmets. They would have found many a moose in Swirl. <laughs> <laughs> so one night in camp, uh, Hank suggests splitting the party up. <laughs> Don't ever split the party. <laughs> I, I actually did not put party in my notes. That slipped out. <laughs> Never split the party, Hank. Damn it. <laughs> Henry Lee. No, I just, I just realized Hank from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Oh. Never, never split the party up, Hank. <laughs> <laughs> because Hank was kind of the de facto leader. Leader, yeah. Even oh. though Eric wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, Hank wants to split the, he wants to split the hunting party up. And he, you know, he and the doctor are going to go to the west, while DeFago will take Simpson east to an area called 50 Island Water. And I, I'm wondering if that's kind of loosely based on the Thousand Islands near Lake Ontario. It might be. Um, I, because I, I, I did look some of the, a, a few things up on Wikipedia about both stories, and I I do know um, uh, they were they were in the because he even mentions this in the story um, the Rat Portage area of, yeah. of of Canada, and that actually there was a link to an article on Rat Portage. I just oh, didn't neat. I didn't click on it to read it, so I don't know. But um, uh, yeah, I just I I, I figured. It's. I figured Fifty Island Water was either a real place or it was based on something similar. So, but yeah. So so Hank suggests that they split up, and uh, you know that he and the Doctor will go west, and Defago and, and Simpson will go east to Fifty Island Water. At, at which point, uh, Doctor Cathcart and Simpson notice Defago's unease with this plan. They Very don't really. Much yeah, he's. Um, but, you know, he acts like he's not scared. I ain't scared. Yeah. Come so, on, Creed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next day, they, they all head out. And as they paddle towards their destination, Simpson had time to think. And I have a thing to read here. But I was not turned to it. <laughs> scared. <laughs> Yeah, and a little similar to what was in the willows. The bleak splendors of these remote and lonely forests rather overwhelmed him with the sense of his own littleness. That stern quality of the tangled backwoods, which can only be described as merciless and terrible, rose out of these far blue woods swimming upon the horizon and revealed itself. He understood the silent warning. He realized his own utter helplessness. Only DeFago as a symbol of a distant civilization where man was master, stood between him and a pitiless death by exhaustion and starvation. I have that one marked to read. Yeah. 
I, I well, do, seriously. And it's another one of Algernon's great wilderness scene setting things. It, it is. And I wanted, I wanted to reference that back to the episode in, that we just did on, on Ambrose Bierce. We, I, I read that quote about civilization, right? And how that tied into and, and may have influenced Lovecraft's writing on uh, you know the, the whole thing in, in Lovecraft stories was man sees his insignificance in the universe and is driven mad by it and that kind of jumped out at me here as it overwhelmed him with the sense of his own littleness uh, you know again there's that similar theme so they they reach the other shore to, to 50 uh 50 gallon water and um, I, I got another thing I was going to read here the beauty of the scene was strangely uplifting. Simpson smoked the fish and burnt his fingers into the bargain in his efforts to enjoy it and at the same time tend the frying pan and the fire. It kind of reminds me of, not that Sam was, Sam Gamgee was clumsy enough to do that, but it kind of reminds me of Sam, you know, of Frodo and Sam <laughs> being out in the wilderness and, and Sam cooking. Yet ever at the back of his thoughts lay that other aspect of the wilderness, the indifference to human life, the merciless spirit of desolation which took no note of man, the sense of his utter loneliness, now that even DeFago had gone, came close as he looked about him and listened for the sound of his companion's returning footsteps. So uh, DeFago had gone out to kind of look around, see if he could find any, tr any trace of moose. And eventually he, he comes back to camp. And when he comes back, uh, he at first things are good, but before they turn in, the talk turns to the wilderness around them. Um, DeFago mentions a strange odor, but Simpson doesn't notice it. He awakens in the middle of the night, realizing that DeFago is crying in his sleep, but is unable to wake him. Uh, manages to fall back to sleep, but wakes up again when DeFago bolts from the tent. And next, almost simultaneously with his waking, it seemed, the profound stillness of the dawn outside was shattered by, the, by a most uncommon sound. It came without warning or audible approach. And it was unspeakably dreadful. It was a voice, Simpson declares, possibly a human voice, hoarse yet plaintive, a soft, roaring voice, close outside the tent, overhead rather than upon the ground, of immense volume, while in some strange way, penetratingly and seductively sweet. It rang out, too, in three separate and distinct notes, or cries, that bore in some odd fashion a resemblance, far-fetched yet recognizable, to the name of the guide, DeFago. Okay, that wasn't as spooky as I'd hoped. <laughs> uh, DeFago, come yeah. out and play. Yeah. <laughs> um, skipping a little bit here. And even before it ceased, dropping back into the great gulfs of silence, the guide beside him had sprung to his feet with an answering, though unintelligible, cry. He blundered against the tent pole with violence, shaking the whole structure, spreading his arms out frantically for more room, and kicking his legs impetuously free of the clinging blankets. For a second, perhaps two, he stood upright by the door, his outline dark against the pallor of the dawn. Then, with a furious rushing speed, before his companion could move a hand to stop him, he shot with a plunge through the flaps of canvas and was gone. And as he went, so astonishingly fast that the voice could actually be heard dying in the distance, 
he called aloud in tones of anguished terror that at the same time held something strangely like the frenzied exultation of delight. Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire. Oh, oh, this height and fiery speed. And then the distance quickly buried it and the deep silence of very early morning descended upon the forest as before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. The, some of the, the Wendigo things I actually looked up when reading this and, and I'll talk a little bit when you're ready to go into like contextual things, but yeah. Yeah, that, that it's I saw that too, where that's a sort of a Wendigo thing. Yeah. And something that else that he noticed, going back to the night before when DeFago had mentioned a strange odor, he notices one. It's he it's described as sweet yet pungent. And, and although I think he there were he, he described it in other ways too, but those are the ways those are the two words that he will describe it with later on in the story too. So young Simpson starts out after him, but realizes that he will get lost in the woods. So he turns back, gathers a few supplies, like, you know, a gun and a hatchet. Um, leaves a note in case DeFago somehow returns to camp by another route. He eventually finds tracks in the snow. DeFago's, but also a set running parallel, which seemed to belong to some sort of animal. He noticed several things as he follows the tracks. The strides of both seem to get longer and longer. There starts to be a weird discoloration to them, and the smaller human tracks made by DeFago's bare feet are starting to take on the shape of the other. <laughs> <laughs> um, he hears DeFago cry out some more uh, about his uh, feet of fire and uh, you know, all that. And this um, ain't no Bruce Lee feet of fire and stuff. No, no. And the voice seems to be coming from the sky. Still, he continues to search, but as the day wears on. But for all that, the journey through the gathering dusk was miserably haunted. He heard innumerable following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concerted attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He went stealthily, trying to hide where possible and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto protective or covering merely, had now become menacing, challenging, and the pageantry in his frightened mind masked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. The presentment of a nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. So yeah, he eventually uh, heads back, goes back to the camp uh, the next morning, gets up, sets off alone in the canoe, uh, back to the base camp. He relates parts of the story to his uncle and Hank, leaving out the parts that seemed most incredible. Uh, and the yeah. three don't tell people the insane stuff until you think they might even believe the nonsense, <laughs> the normal yeah. sane things. Right. The three of them set off the next morning to try and find DeFago. As they're traveling, he relates more of the events, uh, but his uncle, Dr. Cathcart, a man of science, a psychologist, keeps trying to rationalize things. They reach the second camp, but the search is fruitless as the tracks have been covered by fresh snow. Then as they are resting before turning in, Simpson tells them even more of what really occurred, 
And in spite of his scientific background, even Dr. Cathcart starts to show signs of fear, sitting with his back to a tree, jumping at the sound of fish, splashing in the lake, <laughs> keeping the fire blazing, and continuously talking with Hank, which is the last thing I am going to read. But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk. What these two men, each strong and experienced, quote unquote, in his own way, dreaded more than anything else was silence. They were talking against time. They were also talking against darkness, against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in an enemy's territory, arguing anything, in fact, rather than allow their inmost thoughts to assume control. He himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in this respect. He had reached the stage where he was immune. But these two, the scoffing analytical doctor and the honest, dogged backwoodsman, each sat trembling in the depths of his being. <laughs> um, so I'm not gonna give too much more away here. Um, Defago does show up twice more actually once in the second camp sort of and then again at the base camp punk has skedaddled when they re return to the base camp because when defago who returned to the base camp before the others did showed up punk recognized the sweet yet pungent odor that accompanied him and knew what it meant Ooh, ooh what's it mean what's it mean what's it mean ah they must read the story to find ah out. you bastard <laughs> Uh, so if you want to do the contextual stuff, you can do that now. I got a couple more things to read, but that's uh, that's most of it. That's up to you. What would you prefer? Okay, let me let me read this one paragraph. Then you can do the contextual stuff, and then I got two more things. I got a couple things from uh, Lovecraft. Ooh, cool. So, um, so Blackwood's stories of this type tend not to be of the man versus nature type, but instead are more like man versus the spirits of nature, and that's spirits plural. <laughs> yeah, actually, I had, well, it's one of my notes, because he actually talks about sort of the gods of the forest again in this one, and mm -hmm. he does really good uh, gods in the wild. Yeah, the woodland gods to be worshipped in silence and loneliness, so they might stretch their mighty and terrific outlines among the trees. Yes. So, um, and, and I mentioned, you know, I didn't have a note in the willows, but I, I did mention, you know, here, this is where I had the note about there is a bit of psychology and science versus the supernatural you know, with the whole thing of, of uh, Dr. Cathcart trying to be rational and, and reasonable, you know, use reason and, and logic and all that stuff until he's confronted with it. <laughs> Some of that stuff we'll actually go into more when we actually do biographical stuff about Blackwood. Uh, I, you know, we, t we talked a little bit about some of his biography stuff already, but the, he, he had a very interesting life <laughs> and he had some cool. very interesting thoughts. So, um, and his, his thoughts and his beliefs play a big role in both of these stories, I think. Well, that would be interesting to get to. Yeah. So you got, uh, you got some more con contextual stuff there? Or? Uh, contextual and just a few things about the story, but I'll okay. also make sure not to, to do spoilers. So written in 1910, as you said. Yeah. I uh, want to mention that the Wendigo psychosis case of Swift Runner in Alberta was in 1878. That may be one of the more famous or most famous Wendigo yeah. stories. So, you know, that's only 32 years from when this was written. So recent mm -hmm. memory. So if he had gone 
through Canada 10, 20 years before he wrote the story, that still may be a thing that he, he heard about. Um, God, I'm trying to remember when he lived in Canada. Because I think he went he went to Canada and then the U.S., but he he was in the Canadian backwoods, from what I remember. So, so yep, yep, he certainly probably heard about it, especially when the Canadians mm-hmm. get some poncy English dude coming over, and they're like, oh, let's scare the fuck out of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the term uh, Wee Kirk when he talks about Hank Davis. <laughs> when he talks about young Simpson, his nephew his divinity student destined for the wee kirk yep <laughs> <laughs> you know the kirk is being the scottish church authority yep. figure thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> which if you read how the scots invented the modern world you'll figure that out yes you should read that that's a good book <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah you will see yeah, no you know what we can save that we can save that for when you do background of both beers and Blackwood, because okay. there is a, one or two terms in here that will be offensive to modern people. Uh, yeah, there. Yeah, be be aware of that. That that, that there were some some terms used that were uh, <laughs> that would not be PC now. <laughs> yeah, and 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 not they weren't. I don't think they were used maliciously. They were commonly used at the time. The worst one is used as an adjective rather than a noun. Yes. Uh, still not cool. No, no. Um, and I don't even want to repeat the word. So, I mean, you can kind of guess what that would be. Um, so, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, next little note talks about white men with their doll scent might never have divined them. Because Joni mentioned the odor. Uh, yes. Of, of the, the bleak odor coming from the winter even. There's just the seasonal odor, let alone the odor that may or may not have to do with weird supernatural things. Right. But my note with that, because specifically on the seasonal, the bleak odors of coming winter, bullshit, fucking city boy. I know where you're from, Algernon. Shooter's Hill, which is a district in southeast London within the Royal Borough of Greenwich. I can smell winter coming, and I am as white boy as they fucking come. So before you start talking about white men, how about you talk about city men, you ponce? You bastard. Tell you what, can't smell autumn coming, can't smell winter. I fucking smelled autumn two days ago when I walked outside, you bastard. <laughs> oh, I wish I could smell it down here. Uh, he's good at foreshadowing. Oh, he's very good at foreshadowing. <laughs> ah, so, this is something I've mentioned several times in the past few episodes, or a few times in the past several, you know, tomato, yeah. tomato. Uh, where I said in an upcoming episode, I was going to talk about my hiking just a wee bit. Yeah. Uh, when COVID, of course, hit, I started working from home and I gained a lot of weight because I had nothing to do. So I drank and ate a lot. <laughs> so, uh, then as sort of restrictions came up, I started to lose weight because I realized I was becoming a fat bastard. And I have gone all around, all over the damn place doing a lot of hiking. I'll do hiking and beer trips because then I get to drink, but the hiking takes the weight off. Yeah. So, you know, hike a few miles here, have a beer. Hike a few miles here, have a beer. It, it's worked out quite well for my uh, for my weight, but that, that would be its own little episode if we want to talk about that. But I do want to talk about, I've been to state parks, nature preserves, just all sorts of things all around the state and even a few surrounding states. And there are, you can feel the difference in different places. There are some places you can tell almost no human ever goes to because it you're not welcome. Those 
two miles of trails in the 80 acres mm-hmm. over i'm not gonna uh, give names because i want other people to not have preconceived but you can tell when woods they all have their own flavor some woods don't want humans around some woods like humans some preserves actually like humans so much it felt like it wanted me to fall asleep so it could suck me in and make me a wood woodman <laughs> you know so some you can tell would be you know full of the the she and fairies and some would be full of the unseelie court if you go with that you know without getting into the politics of uh the, the fey realm but you can feel differences and i would imagine and i've been to some remote places in my time but not as remote as this story i can imagine even country boy seamus getting a little freaked out <laughs> <laughs> so, you know there, there are places that humans are not welcome even to this day in not very remote settings let alone a uh, hundred years ago yeah <laughs> in, in a place that's still i looked it up it's still if it's based on the one i saw anyway still damn remote oh i imagine it is yeah if it's the area i tried to look up on a map it, yeah it's whoo so so either of them yeah uh, but yeah let's see, can't say that one can't say i mean i do kind of make fun of the uh, macho guide well actually yeah. what I, i'm making fun of them both i said when your macho guide is scared you're probably fucked <laughs> yeah but it's good it builds kind of slow mm-hmm. and yeah there's some overlap with hp lovecraft and their mm-hmm. contemporaries and you know yeah blackwood actually was a contemporary of lovecraft yeah um because blackwood unlike beers who disappeared what 1913 <laughs> Yeah, something like <laughs> something that. Yeah. Like that. Um, Blackwood died in the fifties, so he actually outlived Lovecraft. I think he was he was older because he was born before Lovecraft. He outlived him. Um, oh yeah, he's born sixty nine and died in fifty one. So was yeah. born Dan twenty one years earlier and lived fourteen years later. Yeah, so he surrounded uh, Lovecraft by a fair bit. Yeah, and he did. Um, uh, well, I was gonna. I don't know why I was gonna say it, but he. Oh, never mind. I'll save it for the biographical stuff but yeah he he was a contemporary of lovecraft lovecraft was a big fan of his and these are the last couple things i had on this uh the the willows uh was one of lovecraft's personal favorites um and he he had this to say about the willows here art and restraint and narrative reach their very highest development and an impression of lasting poignancy is produced without a single strained passage or a single false note um, and that's from his 1927 Supernatural Horror in Literature. And I've not read that, so I don't know if that's like an essay or if that's a book or a, uh, whatever, something. Obviously, it's it's a thing on literature. Yeah. Yeah, that thing. But Ed, he also had this to say on the Wendigo. He didn't think as highly of the Wendigo as he did the Willows, but he he, he said this about it. Another amazingly potent, though less artistically finished tale is the Wendigo, where we are confronted by horrible evidences of a vast forest demon about which Northwood's lumbermen whisper at evenings. The manner in which certain footprints tell certain unbelievable things is really a marked triumph in craftsmanship. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah. I would indeed. So yeah, if you like H.P. Lovecraft, um, <laughs> and you like Tolkien, it's like, it's it's like the horror of Lovecraft, but the the beauty of language of Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to learn uh, Elvish language, right? 
<laughs> and you already know the backstory because it takes place in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got. I don't, know if, I don't know if you had anything else, but. Uh, you know, I looked through as you're, you're bringing up that last point and all my other notes just talk about how some of the Scots who are did that, talked about his flowery leg, did that, talked about the psychology. <laughs> you mentioned a good bit of that and that will go more into that. So I'm good. I mean, I looked and all my notes have been covered quite well indeed, my good Yay. sir. Oh, wait, it's, it's Halloween. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> my cat looked up, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the evil one in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so no, all right. I'm good. Oh, that's, uh, that's all I got on that. Sweet. What do we have left for this coming? We still have... Um, you had some more Bradbury stuff, didn't you? Spooky carnivals, including Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, live forever. Ooh, get on the Ferris wheel. Ooh, get on the carousel. Ooh. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> do it. <laughs> no. Air pressure, but if you don't do it, nobody likes you. Nobody liked me anyway. <laughs> James says that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> what do I care? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right then um yeah if you uh, liked it share us yeah tell your friends tell, tell your, your family yeah, tell your enemies yeah <laughs> nice one <laughs> <laughs> find us on facebook find us on twitter under tears underscore manor yep occasionally something gets tweeted out from there it's usually the update that there's been a new episode put up. <laughs> <laughs> or or occasionally on my own personal twitter i'll be like hey cares let's do this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or or maybe a retweet of something some band posts or, or tweets or something yeah. i don't know <laughs> it's all good yeah all right then should we let him go we should before they run away <laughs> <laughs> run away run away <laughs> until next time I'm James I'm Jody I'm <laughs> yeah yeah that's it I'm the devil sure <laughs> well, we'll see you soon bye the Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. <coughs> Damn it. <coughs> I was holding that cough until we finished. Can uh, <laughs> I do that really deep thing without coughing for a little while? <laughs> tap it in. Just tap it in. Tappity tap. The, the, the cop sent him in. As a, he was supposed to be a, a, a guy from, the, from a record label. And they, they were like, no, you're a cop. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm from and they're like, they're like, all right, which side did you take in Van Halen, David Lee Roth split? Van Halen. Eh, he's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> At the time, I actually took Van Halen's side because I didn't really know any better. <laughs> but it's still a funny line. <laughs> yeah. Was, they put out a lot of good music after Roth left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so did Ross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>